Well, as Vernon mentioned, we are going to be continuing this series that we're, in which we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And if you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 20. And we're doing a little bit differently today uh, with two amazing songwriters and singers with us. Uh, what, as I was listening to their music this week, I started thinking this would be great to, to talk through this, this parable and let us have some times of quiet to chew on kind of what we're talking about. So several times during this, Grace and Pierce are going to settle us down and let us digest a little bit of what we've been thinking about, what we're talking about. This parable today is a parable that confuses a lot of folks. I'm hoping that you won't be more confused when you leave here than you were when you came in. It's, called, it's often referred to as the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And it's a story, we're looking at these stories because Jesus enlightens us about our own story in his stories. The gospel is not just about propositions, about the plot of who we are as human beings. Don't compartmentalize the parables to say it's just about our Christian lives, it's just about our church life. It's about who we are as human beings, and this parable fits right in with that. Start reading with me. Verse 1, Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, now a Jewish day would start, the Jews referred to a day starting at 6 a.m. going till 6 p.m., and night started at 6 p.m. going to uh, 6 a.m. the next day. In terms of work, the Jewish calendar, a day would start at sunset the night before. But their work days would be that 12 hour, 6 a.m., 6 p.m. So that early in the morning probably was at 6 a.m. Now about nine, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, and he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, and about three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. Now here's the deal, the reason I told you about that, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. comes into play big time right here. About five in the afternoon, meaning how much time was left in the workday, one hour. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, meaning when six o'clock arrived, quitting time, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. And then here's the curveball. He says, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. That's what had been negotiated with the people that had started at 6 a.m. So when those came who were hired first, those 6 a.m.ers, and even the 9 or the nooner, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Now the word grumble there is in the imperfect tense in the Greek. It means they started grumbled and they kept grumbling. It wasn't just a grumble and then they were done. It was ongoing. Then they said this, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us 
who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day? But the landowner answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Notice he calls him friend. The landowner is still treating them with kindness. He says, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hard last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? And then hear this. Jesus brings us all together and he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a kingdom parable. When we talk about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, what what Jesus is referring to is not a place, it's the realm, that sphere of his rule. The kingdom of heaven Every, everyone is submitted fully to his kingship. On this planet, not everybody submits to the kingship of Jesus. The beauty of coming to Christ is not regaining something to do on a Sunday morning. The beauty of coming to Jesus is being restored in the original purpose we're made for, and that's to be underneath his rule that is liberating, it's not suffocating. So when Jesus teaches about the kingdom is like, he's referring, he's, he's talking about this is what it's like for us as human beings, you and me, so this is what it's like for you guys to begin to taste my rule and the liberation of my rule. Now, This particular passage takes place in a vineyard. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking at a conference in Spain, and the next week, took a couple of days to do a bucket list. Any of you have bucket list items? One of my bucket list items was to hike at least a portion of an 800-kilometer trail called the Camino de Santiago. It's a pilgrimage trail. And that trail took me through, and you go from village to village, and the heat of the day sometimes, and it was quite hot. I wasn't able to spend but about three days, but at least I got some, and I'll I'll go back. It took me through a number of vineyards in the Rioja wine region of Spain. Now, the grapes were green. It's the middle of the summer. They have not ripened yet. And so in the midst of all that heat, and because it wasn't ready, you didn't see many people working in the vineyard. I mean, there are a few people tending, but if you've ever been in a wine region where during harvest, you know it's full of people. It is bustling. There is an urgency about what's going on. This passage that Jesus is talking about, this story, it's a harvest story. You're saying, well, harvest doesn't come up. He doesn't mention harvest. No, but he's hiring additional workers. The landowner keeps going out and hiring more and more people. The reason he's doing that is because his regular staff, so to speak, is not enough to accommodate the workload. That's true in every vineyard since whenever. They've got regular workers that are year-round, but when harvest comes, they go out and they hire temporary laborers. Jesus talks about harvest several times, and when he's referring to the harvest of the kingdom, he's talking about the culmination of who we are. And so let's translate that into something that makes a difference to me every day my alarm rings, and you as well. Is my life counting? Is yours? What do I need to do today to to make my life count? What, what What am I trying to do in order to be significant? Because at the end of my life, that significance is going to be revealed. That sense of, has this been worth it, has come to the forefront. 
This passage is, is about our quest for doing something that matters. And the, there's not a panic in the vineyard at harvest. We don't have to panic on a daily basis. But there's a sense of urgency. This is a day that's been given to me and I want to seize it. How am I going to seize it? How, how will you seize tomorrow? How will you make tomorrow count? Where do we go? What kind of behaviors do we do in order to be significant? A little bit later on the Camino as I was hiking, I, it was a day, this particular day, it was 102 degrees. I, I, I thought that it was illegal in Spain to get that hot. And here you're carrying a backpack from village to village. And, there weren't a whole lot of people out on that day. Most had the sense enough to stay indoors, but I trudged on because I only had a few days. And I came across a beautiful body of water, big lake. And as I stopped and drank some water, looking at that and resting a little bit, I noticed over to the side a, a very large white bird-looking thing. And I figured it was probably a swan. And so I walked around, followed it. The swan disappeared into what I assumed was an inlet. Sure enough, it was a muddy inlet. I went in, and this swan was with her little cygnets. I've learned this weekend that's what you call a baby swan. If you didn't know that, I'd be glad you came to church today. It's a, a baby swan is a cygnet. And this mother was swimming with them very elegantly, guarding them from the other ducks and letting her little, little ones do what they needed. And I just watched for a while. That's part of what the Camino, it's a pilgrimage time for prayer, time for being quiet. And so I just took some time and watched, and it just marveled at how, how firm and elegant and, and queenly she was. Then she got out of the water. Have you ever seen a swan walk on land? It's not a pretty sight. I mean, all that elegance that I was noticing, they would, they would cross in a peninsula. And she waddled. It was awkward, and it reminded me of a poem by the, the German poet, Rainer Maria Rilke. Take a look. It's called The Swan. And I want you to have in your mind, the whole time this morning, the elegance of a swan in the water, the awkwardness of a swan out of the water. This clumsy living, so often we're clumsy in the way we do our lives, that moves lumbering as if in ropes through what is not done, reminds us of the awkward way the swan walks. As to die, which is the letting go of the ground we stand on and cling to every day, is like the swan when he nervously lets himself down into the water, which receives him gaily, meaning there are times we're out of water. That's where we think we're most comfortable. We belong in the water. We need to nervously let ourselves back down into what we were meant for. And which flows joyfully under and after him, wave after wave, while the swan, unmoving and marvelously calm, is pleased to be carried, each moment more fully grown, more like a king, further and further on. All right, put these two stories parallel. Put the poem parallel with the parable. Jesus is talking about the urgency of the harvest and people coming to the end of the day. And, and there is this indication of the significance of that day. And did what we do matter? And how much did it matter? 
And there's this notion of the swan, a swan being in water and out of water. And a swan, when walking on land, is awkward. So often, listen, our pursuit of significance and how we go about trying to make our lives count looks like a swan out of water. We're clumsy. We're awkward. We have, a th- we, we have this notion, this is what I do, need to do to make my life count. This is what I need to do to be significant. And we look like a clumsy swan. It's not where we belong. We're not under the realm of his leadership in his reign. We're not in his kingdom. We're doing our own thing. When it comes to our pursuit of significance, here are some of our inclinations. Let me give you four inclinations that we often have. And these come up in this parable. Most of us are inclined, in order to make our lives count, to be significant, we're inclined to things like performance. i got to perform just right to be significant. We're, we're in, inclined to comparison with others around us. We're inclined to accumulation of stuff. We're inclined to measuring our lives in a way that's not according to how God measures. But all of us do that. We think, okay, if I'm going to be significant, I'm going to make my life count. I'm performance and comparison, accumulation and measurement. Do you know what? That's the awkward way that the swan walks. We look awkward when we're doing that. This parable, Jesus tells a story to unearth that about us. And he offers an invitation that corresponds to every one of those inclinations. Let's look at them one at a time. Let's go back to the first one. Our, that inclination that we've all got, for me to be significant, I need to perform just right. Jesus instead invites us to this realm of grace, not performance. Grace. Performance is the awkward way a swan walks. Grace is the beautiful way the swan swims. This is the water where we belong. You see, I gain my ultimate significance by God's posture towards me. It's a gracious posture. The climactic moment of this parable is these workers that started work at five, an hour before quitting time, they get paid the same. It was a gracious act. They knew they didn't deserve it. And the landowner perceived them in a kindly way. You got the people that started earlier saying our significance comes from the way we performed and those at the end realized their significance came in the posture of the landowner to them. Does it matter what we do, how we spend our time? Of course it does. But my behavior, my obedience, if you want to call it that, my response to the leadership of God is the result of his posture towards me in grace. Grace is him giving me not what I deserve, but what I need. And so often, you know, Paul talks about in Philippians, he says, I I stopped trying to achieve a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying the law, meaning performance. And so many of us, in church circles, Christian, we think, I've got to perform in order for God to like me, in order for me to be someone. And God says, you are somebody because I made you, and I want to extend grace to you. Then we behave out of that. But it's learning to taste that grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship. We're his kids. Through Jesus Christ, through the work of Christ, in accordance 
with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. That posture God has to give you and me not what we deserve, but what we need. His posture towards us not based on our performance, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he doles out to us sparingly when we behave. No. That he lavished on us. The Greek word there is persuo. It's, it's just back up the dump truck and let it rip. Just, he gives us grace upon grace. He's saying that sounds too good to be true. It's why it's called the gospel. Man, ask grace. No irony there, is it? I'm going to ask grace to come out and sing about grace. It's a song that I'd never heard before that she, she wrote, and I heard it this week. I thought, we've got to listen to this. This will help us chew on this whole notion of where are you finding your significance? Are you finding your significance in performance? Or am I finding my, my significance in God's gracious posture towards me? And as she sings about this grace, pay attention to the words and superimpose behind that the background. The story that Jesus told, these workers that worked just an hour, they got fully blessed. And think about how you and I so often are walking awkwardly like the swan walks and we need to get back in the water. The gospel is an invitation to get back into the water for which we were created. And it starts with me embracing God's gracious posture towards me. So spend some time tasting and chewing on grace right now.
When does it run out? It doesn't. Sounds too good to be true. That's why it's called the gospel. And when I began to taste grace, I began to move from that awkward waddle of a swan on the ground. And I began to move in that elegant paddle of a swan in the water. It's opposite of what we think, and that's why Jesus says in verse 16 of this prayer, he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. God's ways are not our ways when it comes to obtaining significance and making our lives count and harvest at the, at the end of all things for us to know it's mattered. There's a different set of rules that the king puts on us. When we enter his kingdom, we begin to operate by those, and it moves us from being on the ground to on the water. That waddle has everything to do with performance and trying to earn God's love. That paddle, that gliding through the water has everything to do with grace. Let's look at a second inclination we've got. All of us, I think we, we kind of naturally go to, if I don't make my life count, it'll have to do with comparison. That's our inclination, to compare ourselves with other people around us. Jesus instead says, I want to invite you back into the water of contentment with my grace. Comparison is where we go. We say, you know what, for me to feel significant, I want to compare myself with you. Wait, wait a minute, you're doing better than me. i got to find somebody that I'm doing better than. But typically, we always come back to people that are, we think are doing better than us in some way, shape, or form, and the comparison is there. And it, just like that performance, it begins to shrink us, shrivel our hearts, and deflate us. And Jesus says, you know what, I want to invite you back into the water. That's an awkward walk. That's not what you're meant for as a human being. What you're meant for is a sense of contentment in my grace. Go back to the parable. What was at the heart of the conflict going on here? It was these workers from early in the morning comparing themselves with the people that came on at the end of the day. This past week, Arlene and I were with some friends for dinner, and one of them asked a question. I don't know where the question came from, but the question was, do you remember the name of your third grade teacher? You, who remembers the name of their third grade teacher? Wow. So you had something traumatic happen just like I did in the third grade. Because I was the only one to remember Mrs. Dees. I said, Mrs. Dees taught me in third grade. And they looked at me and I said, yeah, I got in trouble a lot. And she and I got to know each other. So that was, but I said, actually, the reason that I remember Mrs. Dees so much is because of something she taught me and I'll never forget. She said it one of the first days of school. I don't, it was in September, hot, and I just remember her looking at somebody saying, you mind your own little red wagon. I went home and I said, Mom, what's a red wagon? Why, what, what's the deal with that? And she explained it to me. Miss Dees used that phrase all year. Because so often we compare, well, what about him? He's not getting in trouble. You didn't give him a good grade. She's got the bigger cupcake. You mind your own little red wagon. And so often, what do, we think it will give us a sense of significance if we can compare ourselves and, 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 and gain the upper hand. And Jesus is exposing the comparison of these workers in the vineyard with the folks who came on later. In John chapter 21, this is after Jesus has extended grace to Peter. Three times, he's, he's commissioned him. Say, Peter, you deny me three times. For three times, I'm now going to say, I love you, and I want you to serve me. You haven't fallen off the rail. 
There's significance left in your journey. I love you. I've extended grace to you. What does Peter do? Verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw this disciple, this other disciple, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if, you want him to rem- if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, what's interesting, that phrase, what is that to you? In the Greek, it's mind your own little red wagon. <laughs> Just kidding. But no, Jesus says, hey, Peter, John and I, I'll deal with John. You pay attention to you. Don't try to find your significance in getting the upper hand or comparing yourself. But instead, find your significance in tasting my grace in being content. Paul said, I found, I've learned in all circumstances to be content. Contentment is the water into which you and I are called. The first time I ever came across Pierce's music was with a song that caught me immediately with the title. I was curious. We talk about believing in God. I'd never thought about God believing in me. What makes us content is understanding his posture towards us. Take a listen. (laughs) Sorry, sound man. (laughs) Supposed to turn my guitar on. When you start to doubt if you exist, God believes in you. Confounded by the evidence, God believes in you. Oh, when your light burns so dim, and when your chances seem so slim, and you swear you don't believe in him, God believes in you. When you rise up just to fall again, God believes in you. Deserted by your closest friends, God believes in you. And when you're betrayed with a kiss, and you turn your cheek to another fist, it does not have to end like this. God believes in you. If anything matters at all Everything matters no matter how big No matter how small And God believes in you God believes in you When you're so ashamed that you could die God believes in you And you can't do right even though you try. Blessed are the ones who grieve, the ones who mourn, the ones who bleed. In sorrow you sow, but in joy you will reap. God believes in you. Oh, blessed are the ones who grieve, the ones who mourn, the ones who bleed. In sorrow so but enjoy you will read God believes in you God believes in you God believes in you oh God 
I love that. I mean, it's, and it's, it, we, all, we, we just don't want to believe that. But that's the gospel. As Max Lucado says, if God, had a, if, he, if God had a refrigerator, your photo would be on it. <laughs> and there's contentment that comes. Jesus says the first shall be last, the last shall be first. How you really gain significance is different from what your initial inclination is. First, our initial inclination is we gain significance by our performance. He says, no, you gain significance by tasting my grace. Secondly, our inclination is that we gain significance by comparison. He says, no, your significance comes with a sense of contentment as a result of the grace that I've lavished on you. Our third inclination is that we will gain significance by accumulation of stuff, of wealth. And Jesus gives us an invitation in the face of that. He says, that's not where you're going to gain contentment, or gain, gain significance. You're going to gain significance when you adopt a rhythm, a cadence of generosity, contrasting with the accumulation that we tend to run to to gain significance. Jesus says your ultimate significance comes with you being generous with what I've given you. Go back to the parable. What were the people, the 6 o'clock a.m., and I can understand them, what were they so upset about? They were not upset about injustice. And the landowner makes that clear. He says, I've not been unjust, unjust to you. We contracted for a denarius. I've paid you that. You know what they were most upset about? The landowner's generosity. And they're exposed. When you're a generous person, you don't become upset at other people's generosity. But when you're not, when that whole, and you, you and I live in a culture in which significance is defined by accumulation, how much stuff we can have, whoever dies with the most toys wins, which is absurd. The reason that we have been blessed, first, Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can put it all on display and feel significant when people look and say how much stuff he has. No, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So in the face of what our culture says will bring a significance of accumulation, Jesus extends an invitation to us. He says, that's the awkward way that the, the swan walks. Get back in the water, and the water is receiving grace, being contented with that, and then being generous with it. You know, a brilliant songwriting has a number of different twists and turns to it. And sometimes it, it's the, 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 um, the pairing of the melody and the lyrics. Sometimes the melody and the lyrics go together. Maybe if it's a sad lyrics, it's, it's in a minor key, or happy lyrics, it's, it's got a happy lilt to it. But there are other times that the songwriter decides to throw us off balance, and there's a juxtaposition. It can be an upbeat tune that you kind of want to move to, 
But when you start paying attention to the words, you can see the power of the contrast. Pierce wrote a song called, Woe to the Rich Man. Take a listen, both to the lyrics, but also to the melody. Woe to you, rich man, weep and will. Woe to you, rich man, weep and will. Woe to you, rich man, weep and will. The pride of man, these are fires of hell. Money evil? No. 
It's the root of so many evil things. God might have blessed you much. Be generous. And don't think, okay, it's the accumulation of that that makes me significant. No, it's my generosity with what God has given me that gives me significance. So the awkward way that the swan walks, the awkward way that human beings try to find significance through performance, through comparison, through accumulation. There's a fourth awkward way we try to find significance, and it's through measurement. We all... How you measure significance is a little bit different, but with the way you do it and the way you do it. But we've all got our little measuring tools, and we start thinking, I haven't done enough of whatever it is that's going to bring me significance. Jesus counters that inclination with an invitation, and it's an invitation to just sheer faithfulness. Faithfulness. So the awkward way that we try to find significance that, that performance and comparison, accumulation and measurement in so many ways, but that, that glide of the swan getting back in the water. It's about grace and contentment and generosity, but then faithfulness, the climactic aspect of this parable has to do with men and women who started working at five and the landowner said, you seize the opportunity, I bless you. Who was more significant? Whose work was more significant in this parable? The people that started work at six or the people that started work at five? You're looking at me saying, that's a trick preacher question and I'm not answering it. <laughs> okay, it is. They were equally significant because it wasn't about measurement. It was about faithfulness. The opportunity that those who started at six in the morning, they fulfilled. They were faithful throughout the day. God blessed them in the same way that the people who only worked an hour, but that's the opportunity that they, they, they had. Uh, any of you ever heard of Mother Teresa? Okay, thank you. Any of you ever heard of Billy Graham? I mean, you, you, we could keep naming some great heroes of the faith. And guarantee there are tons of us in, these, in this place and listening online, and you think, okay, this whole notion of reward. And the scriptures do teach about reward. Even those of us who are in Christ, our sin has been paid for, but what we do matters. And there will be reward, 1 Corinthians 3 teaches us uh, about there. But what, what this whole notion of reward that is hinted at in this parable, most of us think there is no way that I could gain as much reward as Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. I'm not sure that that's biblically accurate. There could be somebody in a very remote place caring for a small group of people, ministering to a small group of people, and you know what? They're responding to the opportunity that they've been given. They're being faithful to what they have been entrusted with. Could it be that our reward is directly related not to this measurement of quantity, but to the stewardship that we have of the opportunities we've been given. You've been gifted differently than you, and the issue is not the measurements. It's faithfulness. Have we been stewards? And the beautiful dance Jesus invites us into, from this awkward waddle of performance and comparison and accumulation and measurement, he liberates us. In the gospel, he says, the gospel is an invitation back into the water. 
to grace and contentment and generosity and a cadence of faithfulness. Some of you feel like it's too late in your life to make any difference. It's five in the afternoon. It's still plenty of time. Some of you think I've sinned too much. It's five in the afternoon. It's plenty of time. That's the beauty of the dance that Jesus calls us into, absolutely.